So it seems to me that God has granted men, and really just conceptual beings, period, two knowledge apparatus. Those two abilities to gain knowledge. And those two abilities would be our sense perception, to take in information, to experience things, whether you see it, hear it, feel it, so forth on. And he's given us reason. He's given us logic. That we can see if something is true or something is not true, or should I say, as long as we can see that it's contradictory. So you don't necessarily need to experience something, but if someone tells you something that's just flat out contradictory, then we can know that it is false. But sometimes the challenge is, is that a statement that appears to be immediately contradictory turns out to actually be non-contradictory. It actually seems to be what we think was incoherent turns out to be actually coherent and makes sense. And does anyone know what that phenomenon is? When something appears to be a contradiction, but actually turns out not to be a contradiction. It's a term, paradox. It's a paradox. And we have many paradoxes in the Bible. We have the paradox of the triune nature of God, that we have one God, yet that God subsists in three persons. We have the hypostatic union, that Jesus is truly man and truly God. Even Jesus and his teachings often use this paradox. He says, if you would save your life, you must lose it. But if you lose your life, you will keep it. See, at face value, that seems to be contradictory. But truly, it's a paradox. It's a way of speaking. It's a way to bring out a great and profound truth. Well, in our text tonight, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, we will see another paradox, something that appears to be a contradiction, but as we our diligence as we consider what he is saying, we'll see that, in fact, there is no contradiction whatsoever. We must be patient with the Bible, not come to quick, quick and hasty conclusions, but to be workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if you could, please turn to First John chapter 2. First John Chapter 2, I'll begin in verse 1 for context. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So today we're going to we'll begin by focusing in on 
verse 7, where the apostle says that I am writing you no new commandment but an old one that you've heard and had from the beginning, the old commandment, which is the word that you have originally heard. The first thing that the apostle wants to emphasize here and why he brings out that he's not writing them a new commandment but an old one is because he wants to show them that he is not novel in his doctrine. Because if you see right before that, he talks about the fact that if we walk in the commandments of God, we are true. But if we do not walk in the commandments of God, we are liars. Well, he wants to immediately show them that what he's talking about is not some secret commandment, not some commandment that no one's ever heard of, that now is the new requirement to be saved. And if you think about that, people are always doing that. Right? There's always this sense that this is the way that you were supposed to live, or you thought you were supposed to live, but now here comes the new fad of the world, some new doctrines, some new teachings, some new prophets, some new something, and now the old ways were insufficient, and now you must come into the new ways, otherwise your faith is void, your faith is deficient. You don't know what it's like to truly love people. You're insensitive. You are not sufficient. But the apostle is not doing that. And we can kind of read in between the lines here and suspect that that's exactly what his opponents were doing. His opponents were teaching new doctrine and saying that these are the things, these are the new standards, these are the new truths that you must conform to. But John is saying, I'm telling you things that aren't new, but that you have heard from the very beginning. This foundation of Christian truth has not changed. It is rock solid. It remains. And this is very similar to the same thing that happens in Paul in Galatians chapter 3. You remember Galatians where the Galatians were tempted to leave the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's work alone. And they were to discard that because of the Judaizers who said that that's insufficient, right? You lack one thing, a commandment to circumcise. And so they were tempted to abandon the simplicity of the gospel and go into no gospel at all, a gospel of works. And here's what Paul says to them in Galatians 3. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Well, by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteous. Now, I truly love this text, and I go back to this text all the time in Galatians 3, and here's why. It seems that God has called me to debate people and to study heretical doctrines all of the time. I feel like my whole walk in Christ has been studying heretical doctrines and studying them and trying to refute them. Even when I first got saved, I started debating Catholics and Jehovah Witnesses and, and all across the spectrum. And there's good things about that, but there are bad things, because in order to refute heresies, you must consume heresies. And that is negative. And sometimes in the middle of the night, you hear a dark whisper and say, what if you're wrong? And that is disturbing. And that disturbs me. But I often, when I hear that dark satanic voice in my head, go back to this verse, because it reminds me that I receive the Spirit not by this heretical teaching, but by the true teaching. In other words, I go back to my salvation, and I go back and remember how did I come 
to start this journey with Christ in the first place. I believe in the true gospel and the true Christ. And that message changed my life. And now I know him. And so now I know of a Mormon, Jehovah Witness, or anybody else comes knocking on my door and saying, one thing thou lackest, I know, no, I lack nothing. Because I know him who is sufficient, which is Christ. And that's what he's saying here. That you receive the Spirit, not by this other thing, but by the true gospel which you believed. And I would just give that to you as maybe one day you'll hear a voice. Maybe it's not a heretical voice. Maybe it's an atheistic voice. Maybe any voice that would cause you to doubt what you have, the salvation that you have received. And just remember, did you receive what you received by this new teaching, this new thing that's whispering in your ear, or by receiving the old truth, the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel? So this first thing he points to is the past. You got saved. What was the message that you got saved by that changed your life? The second thing he points to is this ongoing work. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? So he goes back to the past. You got saved by the hearing of faith, so trust in it. Then he goes to the present and says that you continuously see God's work. Is it by this novel teaching or is it by the old paths and the simple truths? And he points to the simple truths. Now, for our context, I don't see works of miracles being done uh, today. So we don't necessarily point to that, but I think the, the principle here is the ongoing work of God. Where is it at? Is it in this new teaching, this new thing, or those old paths? You can think about in your own life, the ongoing work of God in your life, him sustaining you, him bringing faith into your hearts and helping you to walk in his ways. Was it produced by this new teaching? Of course not, because you haven't even received that new teaching. It was by the old teaching. So do not be quick to abandon the word that you have heard that has blessed you, that has saved you, and that has sustained you all the way through. You jump off this train into the other train, and you'll jump into perdition. This is also like what Jude warns in Jude chapter 1. We just got through our series in Jude, so hopefully you remember this verse. You have it tattooed on your heart. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing for you to what? Remember, anybody remember? Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need the new thing. That new message is false. It's not true. Its author is the author of lies. There is a true message that has been delivered once for all to the saints. Hold on to the gospel truth and don't let anyone Snatch it from you. So the first thing that he, we see in our passage back in First John is that he wants to tell them, I'm not writing something to you that's new. I'm writing to something that is old, something that you have heard from the very beginning. Now, there's debates on what he means here from the very beginning. Some would say that from the beginning points to the Jewish age. Other people would say from the beginning points to the beginning of the church. And others would say from the beginning points to their conversion. I personally think it points to their conversion. These are the things that they have heard, they have heard from the beginning, from the very beginning of their conversion experience, which is very similar to what we saw in Galatians chapter 3. So the question is, all right, he's not writing anything new to them, but something old. But what is he writing? What's this commandment? What, what is he even talking about? Well, if you scan through this text, verses 7 through 11, maybe you can scan through it right now, does it say what the commandment is? 
It doesn't actually say. It's not anywhere said. And this is the commandment. In fact, actually, um, if any of you can read Greek, or even if you have an ESV, you'll probably see this. It'll say in, in verse 8, it is a new command that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and true in you, because, and you'll see this little note there in that word because, actually in Greek is that. And so when I was reading this in the original language, I was like, okay, so this is the new commandment. This is what, and then I read to my vein, no explanation, talking about light and darkness. Actually, the text doesn't explicitly say what the, the new or the old commandments, both new and old, and we'll talk about that in a second. It doesn't actually tell you what it is. It doesn't actually say. But it's implied. It's implied in, well, we got these clues, should I say. First off, it's an old commandment which they've heard. So this is a commandment that they had from the very beginning. This is not a new Christian teaching, but an old Christian teaching. Somehow it's new, and we'll talk about that in a second. We also see in the very fact that he doesn't mention what this commandment is means that they already knew what the commandment was. It was already center in their mind. It's not some obscure teaching, in other words. It's not something that is something that they would have to guess. They, they knew it already. Also, if you look down to verse 10 and 11, we, we kind of get a clue, we get a hint. But before I go there, I just want you to think, what commandment do you think it is? When you think about this old and new commandment, what commandment's coming to your mind? Well, we'll, we'll see. Verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in a light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what's the command found in verses 10 and 11? Well, whoever loves his brother. And then verse 11, the opposite. But whoever hates his brother. What's the old commandment that we've been commanded from the very beginning? It's to love. Who? Love God and to love your neighbor. Remember, Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? How can you summarize all of the commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why immediately after, he talks about love. Because the old and new commandment is love. And I ventured to suspect that most of you, if you had a little secret poll, and I looked at the results, probably already knew that already. Because this is foundational Christian teaching. We are people who love. We love God. We love our neighbor. So now that we know what the commandment is, even though he doesn't explicitly say it's a commandment to love, now we have to ask ourselves, well, in what sense is it old? Well, it's old because it's given in the Old Testament. It's given in Leviticus 19.18, which says this, says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, who knew you could find some jewels in Leviticus? There's some good stuff there. You got to wade through it. But there's some really good stuff there. And we have that great command. Love your neighbor. That did not originate in the words of Jesus. It's right here already in the Old Testament. And even before this was written, do you think people knew they were supposed to love their neighbor? Of course, because God has written his law on humans' hearts. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 2, that no one is with excuse because no one can say, I did not know I was not supposed to hate and murder and beat my neighbor. Everyone knows that. Everyone has that written in their hearts that they are meant to love. So it's old because this is the law written on our hearts from the very beginning of creation. This is old also because it was written explicitly in the Old Testament in Leviticus. It's also old because it came from Jesus. This was not something that was revealed simply by the apostles later on after Jesus had gone unto heaven and sent his spirit to lead the church. But Jesus himself in his earthly ministry spoke a lot about love. And he spoke specifically about the need for the disciples of Jesus to love. 
And we find an example of this in John chapter 15. You can turn there or, or not. You can say where we are. John chapter 15, the, the famous passage which Jesus begins his teaching by saying this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So he's saying that I am the great vine. And if you want to have salvation, if you want to be fruitful, then you must abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a beautiful picture of the vine and our need to dwell within the vine. He goes on to say, whoever, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What can you do without Christ? Nothing. Can you love without Christ? No, you can't. Can you love God without Christ? No. Can you love your neighbor without Christ? No. You need to abide in Christ. And then later on in verse 12, he says this. This is my commandment. So, let me back up a little bit. He's talking about bearing fruit. You must be in me to bear fruit. Well, what kind of fruit is he talking about? Well, verse 12 of John 15 tells us, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's, that's what it's all about. That is what Christ wants of you. He wants you to believe true things, because if you don't believe true things, you can't get on the vine. You have to believe the gospel in order to get on the vine in the first place. You have to believe, trust, and be connected to Christ to get on the vine. But once you're in the vine, what kind of fruit does he want to see bearing in your life? Now, there might be many types of fruit, but the fruit that he emphasizes specifically is the fruit of love. And so sometimes, especially us who are more inclined to have, be brainy, love theology, Love those kind of things. We need to hear this. Yes, God wants you to love him with your mind. That's true. So it's not like knowledge isn't an expression of love, but it doesn't stay there. It's also that this love should be flowing through in our actions. We can't just be theologians, but we also have to be practitioners of love, love for God and love for neighbor. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then jumping down to verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What does he want? It's in that conclusion. I'm saying all of this so that you will love one another. This is not new Christian teaching. This is something that teaches told the disciples from the beginning. So it's old because it comes from the Old Testament. It's old because it's written on our hearts. It's old because Jesus came down here and told people, this is what I want from you. Love one another. Now, in what way is it new? You saw how it's old, but then he says, and it's kind of confusing, right? Look back to First John chapter 2. I'm writing you no new commandment, nothing new. It's old. You had this from the beginning. You've heard it long ago. And then verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. What is going on? <laughs> he just said, I'm not writing a new command. And then immediately after, I am writing a new command. This is that paradox problem, right? Now, if you're just grumpy or someone who has no charity, the Bible, oh, immediate contradiction. I'm sure some atheist somewhere has put this as one of their lists of the Bible's full of contradictions. See, it contradicts itself within two sentences. But that is a lazy approach and an uncharitable approach. Better to ask, okay, what way is it old? We already talked about that. Well, what way is it new? Let's consider that. It's new 
Because Jesus called it new. And if Jesus says it's new, it's new. Even though I don't understand, and I'll try to explain how I think it is new, but even I don't understand. As long as Jesus says it's new, it's new. It's good enough for me. Hopefully it's good enough for you. But here's where Jesus calls this command new. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So you also ought to love one another. There it is. That settles it for me. Jesus called it new. And what did he call new? That you love one another just as I loved you. So you also love one another. So in some way, the master tells us it's new, therefore it is new. And this is also alluded to in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 6. It says this. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Here's why I say it alludes to that. Because if you go back to John 13, 34, he doesn't just say, a new commandment I say to you that you love one another, period, done. No, he doesn't. He says, you love one another just as I have loved you. The love that we are to give to others is the same love that was expressed by Jesus. And then verse 6, right before our passage, tells us that we are to walk in the same way which he walked. Well, how did he walk? In hate? In disregard to his neighbor? In arrogance? No, in love. And so we are to walk in love. Not just love, but the same love that he had. And then look at verse 8. Verse 8 also alludes to this reality of we're to be imitators of Christ. Look at verse 8 again. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Who's the him? It's Christ. This commandment that's new was true in Christ. How? Because it was first manifest in Christ. And now it's manifest in his people. Christian love is an imitation of Christ's love. We are image bearers of God. We're also image bearers of Christ. We're to bear his image. People should look at you and see a reflection of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what we're all supposed to do. We're all supposed to be able to say, in a limited scope, of course, imitate me when I'm doing the right things, not the wrong things. But there should be some point of your life where you can tell somebody, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christians are supposed to be imperfect, but yet nonetheless reflections of their master. It is good enough for a disciple to be like his master. That's our goal, is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So Christian love is the imitation of Christ's love. 1 John 3.16 makes all of this point explicit. It says this, by this we know love. How do we know what love is? Do we just make it up in our own minds? Whatever feels good? No. By this we know what is love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus raises the bar. How does the Christian think of the commandment to love one another? What is his standard? Is his standard grandma? Is his standard the world? Is his standard his own convenience? His own prosperity? What his friends tell him is the standard of love. None of those are the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder, how should I love? Am I going too far? Am I pushing out too, too much of myself for someone else? Well, just ask, what about Jesus? Did Jesus go too far? How far was Jesus willing to go? All the way to the cross. That's why Jesus also tells us to pick up our cross and to follow him. He took up an instrument of death. We are to take up an instrument of death. How are we to love? The same way that Christ loved. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's what the Bible says. It's not speculation. The Bible explicitly tells us, just as he laid down his life, so we ought to lay down our lives. And interesting enough, you might think, for God. Yes, you ought to lay down your life for God, but the text explicitly says, you want to see this, First John 3.16, for yourself, for your brothers. 
Lay it down for God. Lay it down for your brothers. This is the Christian calling. So in summary, the commandment to love one's neighbor is old because it's written on your hearts at the very beginning. And it's also explicitly mentioned in Leviticus 16. It was also given by Jesus Christ to the church in his ministry and repeated all throughout the Bible. So it's old in that way. But it's new in the sense that the, the commandment to love is written on our hearts. It never said, love as Christ loved the church. It never said that. You can look at your heart. It didn't say anything about Christ, does it? It just said to love your neighbor. In Leviticus 16, it didn't say anything about love as Christ loved. Because Christ did not come. He was not yet. We have, we have to wait into the New Testament where we get the new form of the commandment. It's not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as Christ has loved you. That's the new part. Now we see that this love, what this love is supposed to look like, what this love is supposed to imitate is Christ. And in that way, the commandment is new. So in one way, it's old. In another way, it is new. And this commandment we have seen expressed in Christ and in you. See, it's interesting if you look in the verse 8, it says this commandment is true in him and in you. This is not an impossible thing. You see that? This is not something that's all up here that, oh, yeah, we just fail. (laughs) No, he says it is true in Christ. He didn't fail. And it is true in you. Not perfectly true, of course. But it is still true in you. This isn't just an ideal for you to fail. This is something for you to see that this is the standard in He's saying it's true in you. This actually is something that we're supposed to do. It's something that we do do, even if we do it imperfectly. And then we see that next phrase that's somewhat perplexing. It threw me off when I was reading in the Greek. It says, because, literally, that, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And I stumble because I'm trying to find an explanation of what the new commandment is or the content of the new commandment in that phrase, and it's not helping. But this was a very humbling experience. I realized my Greek is not as good as the translators of your Bible because, because it's the only thing that makes sense here. And that's why I went through every single modern translation. They all said, because. I said, okay. This is obviously what it means. And that's what it means. The word hati can have that expression. So what does this word because mean? It obviously is not the content of the new commandment. So what does because, what's because becausing? Well, there's multiple explanations. Again, it's difficult linguistically, and it's difficult to kind of understand its relationship uh, contextually. So there are kind of multiple different explanations, but I'll just give you the two main ones. One say that the because is an explanation of why the commandment is new. The commandment is new because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And the way they would explain this is that the, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining refers to the fact that the love that Christ had, and the love that believers have is a new creation love. It's the inbreaking of the new age in this age. And in that way, the commandment is, is new because it expresses this new creational love. Now, I think that this is theologically true, but I find that very difficult, and it's even difficult for me to explain exactly that meaning because it just doesn't seem to be what's going on there. More importantly, besides my incredulity, on the view. More importantly, the reason I think that's probably not the right view is because this idea of a new commandment is exactly the same thing Jesus said about the exact same commandment. And so it seems strange to me that John would not be alluding directly to Jesus' statement that this commandment is new. Because under that interpretation, he's giving an alternate reason, an alternate way that the commandment is new. Namely that it's new creation love. 
But I don't think that's right. I think it's more likely that he's saying it's a new commandment because Jesus says it's a new commandment because it, it finds its new expression in Christ. So others, which I agree with, think that the word because here connects to the phrase, it is true in him and in you. Why is it true in him and in you? Well, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The reason why this love is true in us, the reason that we express this love, is because Christ inaugurated his kingdom. That Christ is the king of the universe, the king of glory, come down in the form of man. He's bursting forth the new age into the old. And that's why it was true in him. And why is it true in you? Because, and this is really interesting if you think about it, what happens to us when God changes our hearts? What do we call that? Conversion or regeneration. Now, what's really interesting is, in the Bible, it says that in Christ, male nor female, slave or free, none of those things matter. You know what Paul says? Here's what matters. A new creation. Now, it's really interesting. That's a really interesting phrase. None of that other stuff matters, but what matters is a new creation. He's talking about what matters is the fact that you become a new creation in Christ. Well, where does that phrase new creation come from? It comes from Isaiah. And Isaiah talks about that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that's where we're going. I don't have time to get into eschatology, but many people think they're going to die and to go to heaven, which is partly true. But you don't stay there. The whole world will be regenerated and we will dwell on the new creation. That's where our ultimate home is, is in the new creation. Let me try to tie this in real quick. So our ultimate destiny is the new creation. But when we're born again, we're regenerated, and our new spirit is called a new creation, which means that that new spiritual man belongs to the new creation. Just like Jesus Christ is the inbreaking in of the new creation, he has a glorified body, not like Lazarus who died again, but as the new creation body. And the Bible says that we will be made in his image. He is the first fruits. He is the beginning of new creation. I hope you understand that. Christ is the beginning of the new creation. He's the firstborn. But also, if you think about this, then when we're born again, our spirits also belong not to this creation, but to the new creation. And so as that new man with that new spirit loves, where's that coming from? The new heart that he's given you, which belongs to the new creation. So what we're seeing when we see the love of Christians for one another is we're seeing new creation burst forth into this creation. And what I'm talking about here is not novel. It's called the already not yet or inaugurated eschatology. It means this. It means that Jesus Christ, when he came here, he inaugurated the kingdom. And this was revolutionary to my thinking when I first heard this. Because I often have heard that the kingdom, I really don't have time to get into all this, but the kingdom, when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom's at hand, that what he meant by that was, it's coming, you rejected it, so then now it's coming later on. That's what I was always told. But actually, what happens is, the kingdom of God was at hand, and it came, and it's here. Let me try to prove this to you real quick. The kingdom of God is, in some sense, already here, but in some sense, it's also future. For example, is Jesus going to be king, or is Jesus king? Both. He will be king, and he is king. Here's where it says he's king. Revelation 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who's king right now? Jesus. Jesus is my president. He is. Because right now, Jesus rules over the earth. But the full manifestation of Jesus' reign waits yet a future day. 
already? Not yet. Here's another example. Matthew 12, 28. Is the kingdom of God future or is it now? Both. Here's a text that proves that. Matthew 12, 28 says this. Jesus was talking about the fact that he sent out his disciples to cast out demons. And they said that you cast out demons by Beelzebub. That's what Jesus says. If it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has already arrived in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the king, and he ushers in his kingdom. It is already. When we are born again, we enter into the kingdom of God now, and we're members of that kingdom. However, it is yet future, and the Bible teaches that too. Mark 9, 47 says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. That's talking about future. It's talking about rather go to the kingdom of God, i.e. eternity with God, than go to eternity with the devil. So clear, it's very clear that that refers to the future. Here's another text. Mark 14, 25. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus saying, one day I will drink once more of the fruit of the vine in the kingdom of God. Clearly future. This is clearly referring to when one day the great supper of the Lamb will occur and the people of God will dwell together with God with this great banquet feast that we see in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah. So that's the already, not yet. If you want more explanation of that, just talk to Neil. You can talk to me as well. And we can try to explain more of that theology. But it's a, a beautiful truth that the future eschaton is breaking in to the present right now. We are new creations in Christ Jesus, and as we love, we demonstrate the kind of love that will be there. It's awesome to think about that. The, the sincere love that we have here is a foretaste of the sincere love that we'll have there, except it won't be mixed with our human frailty and our sin. In a little time we have left, let's look through verses 9 through 11 and make a few closing applications. Verse 9 says this, Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, it's interesting that verse 9 through 11, its main point is talking about a test of our faith. And it's really interesting how often John has said this already and how often he will say this. So I won't spend too much time because I'll end up preaching the same sermon every time I come up here because that's how often John talks about this. But John's message is absolutely crystal clear. If you hate your brother, what does he say? He says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. You are not saved if you're in the darkness. You are saved if you're in the light. Very simple. If you love your brother, you're in the light. If you hate your brother, you're in the darkness. If that makes you uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable with the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Don't twist it. Don't corrupt it. Don't explain it away. Don't say this is about rewards. It's not. He's talking about a test of faith. He's talking about whether you truly are saved or not. If you have nothing but hate in your heart for your brothers and sisters in the Lord, you're in the darkness, and you need to come to the light. You come to the light by repenting of your sins and believing and trusting in Jesus. He will cause you to be, new, to be born again, He'll bring you into the light, and he'll fill your heart with love. That's the truth. So if you see, if you say something, I actually knew a Christian. He no longer walks in the Lord, which is not surprising. But I knew a Christian says, 
I don't like Christians. He had hate for his brothers. He was in the darkness. And now it's manifest to all because he doesn't even walk with the Lord at all. That's not something you should ever say. It's not true. If it is true of you, then you're not true in him. That's just exactly what the text says. There's no explaining it away. And what's going on here, real quick, hopefully everyone knows this already, is what happens is when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we're born again and new creations in Christ. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. And when we are saved, the God who justifies you, sanctifies you, change your life, and you walk in his ways. If you don't get the latter part, changes your life and walk in his ways, you have not got the former part. Namely, that you did not repent of your sins, truly trust in Jesus to be born again. It's just that simple. We're not saved by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works. And if you don't have the good works, you don't have the salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. So that's the big picture here. One interesting thing that we'll note is in verse 10, it talks about if you're in the light, in him, in the person who's abiding in the light, there is no cause for stumbling. Now, usually in the Bible, when we have this word stumbling, it talks about do not become a stumbling block for your brother. Don't do that kind of thing, right? If your brother is stumbling over meat, give it up. If your brother is stumbling over your vocabulary, change it. Don't be a stumbling block for people. Help people come to Christ. Don't cause them to stumble. It means give up your rights and give up your rights. And so some have thought maybe that's what he's talking about here, that if you walk in the light, then you'll never be a stumbling block for others. Unfortunately, that's not true. Sometimes we do stumble and cause other people to stumble. And we just need to repent of that and try better next time. But maybe that's talking about. It's talking about, in general, if you walk in the light, you won't be a cause of stumbling for others. I, however, think that that's not the right interpretation here because of verse 11. Verse 11, notice who's stumbling. Is it your brother or is it you? But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There's no mention of his brother. It's all about you walking in darkness and not knowing where you're going. So have you ever been in your house? This is your house. You know where everything is. And it's pitch black. Maybe the lights are out. Maybe the power's gone out. And you don't walk with the same stride you used to. And you might actually trip over something that you would not have tripped over if the lights were on. Because when we have the lights, we have knowledge and we can see what's there. But when the darkness is covering our eyes, we cannot see and we don't know and we stumble across things. I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the difference between someone having the light and they can see where they're going. They make it to their destination. You can get to the bathroom and back without problems as long as there's light. Maybe even a night light. You need something. But if it's completely dark... There might be some crashing, some stumbling, some accidents, and some problems. And that's what's going on here. And the stumbling, though, might be comical to hear somebody cry out because they stubbed their toe on a block or something like that in the middle of the night. But here is no laughing matter. The stumbling he's talking about is the stumbling to perdition. He's talking about getting on the clear path, the way of life that is, that is narrow and few there are that find it, and stumbling off of it. And Pilgrim's Progress is all about people stumbling off that path. And that is the way of darkness. The way of darkness is full of traps and dangers and pitfalls and the devil and the world and everything else. And if you think you're going to make it to the heavenly kingdom in the darkness, you are sorely mistaken. You will stumble, you will fall, and you will not rise. But if Jesus is your light, Jesus will take you home. No one that comes to him will be cast out. He will hold on to you. You'll have the light. It might not, I'm not going to say it's smooth cruising there, but he'll get you there one way or the other. That's what's being contrasted here. So come, trust, believe, and love Jesus. Last thing I'll say about this passage is notice that love here is a test. That's what it is. 
Love here is a self-evaluation of yourself. This is to make your calling and election sure. Some people say never doubt your salvation. Well, if you look at this passage and you find yourself in darkness and find yourself hating your brother, you should have some real reason for concern. That's what this passage is written to do. It's to wake people up. It's to turn the lights on. It doesn't mean we have that perfect love, but this does mean something. This does mean that if you're full of hate and bitterness, something is sorely wrong, and that something very well might be that you're not saved at all. And whatever it is, you need to repent of it and turn back to love. So here we have the test of love, and namely the test of love to love your neighbor, to love your brother. And we have one other test found in the Bible about love, or at least one other test found in John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. These are the tests. Do you love God? Do you love God? Keep his commandments. And just love him. And if you love God, then love those who are born of God. These are the things that we ought to do. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your gospel message. We thank you that we're not saved by works at all. Lord, each and every one of us fail every day. Each and every one of us have, at times, hated our brother. At times, have not loved as we ought to. But we thank you that we're forgiven in Christ. Lord, we ask that we would do better. We ask, Lord, that we would love more. We thank you, Lord, that you have caused us to be born again as new creations so that we can love. And God, we ask that we would walk in your spirit and love more. We also ask, Lord, if there be anyone here who, as they look in their own hearts, see that it's full of darkness and full of hate, that they would consider the warnings of your scripture, wake up and see they need to repent and come and trust you and trusted you afresh, or really come to trust in you the first time. We pray these things in Jesus' name.